0: Hi there, Glocal citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. It's a Friday night that we're doing this interview. And I just want to give you all a heads up in case you hear a little bit of notes wafting through the sound that there's a party going on in my backyard. (laughs) Not mine, but the next house, which is kind of for the course on a Friday, um, which is often the funeral day, so I have suspected it might be a funeral. So that's just a little bit of a Ghana background. And so we're back in Africa, even with my guest today, who is an international development professional focused on Africa and the intersection of gender equality and economic empowerment. She is passionate about social entrepreneurship that fosters the creative economy on the continent, And also builds opportunities for job creation she's the owner of a few good things an online store with the aim of highlighting talented african designers whose work has sustainable and ethical production practices at its core and as a complement to a few good things she has a startup enterprise which is called atelier mboka with a focus on building an inclusive value chain for fashion accessories Tina
1: Mbachu, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Yay. So tell us first off, where are you from, where are you local,
1: and what is your craft? Good question. Yeah, so I was born in Cameroon and then relocated to Canada in my preteen years. I came to Canada with my dad and when we first came to canada we lived in toronto for about a year and a half but after that we relocated to the french part of canada to a city to a laval a city next to the montreal area i'm not sure if you're familiar with with montreal so we lived in montreal and i kind of grew up there but the question of like where i'm local is a little bit tricky because i feel like i've lived in so many different places that have become local to me so I've lived, you know, in Ottawa, Montreal, Amsterdam, in the Netherlands. Got no area here, like in in Ottawa region. So those are all places that are local. I'm currently physically based in Toronto, but all of these other places sort of are part of like my weekly experience. (laughs) Yeah, I would say I'm local to a few of those places. Okay. And what is your craft? How
0: would you describe your craft?
1: My craft? Yeah. So I guess I would say that my my craft is just creating programs. So creating programs and initiatives that empower the, I guess, more vulnerable amongst us. So primarily women and youth. So creating programs that enable them to be able to, to kind of get to that next stage of their life economically and socially as well. So I've done that within the nonprofit space and also within the private sector space as well. Mm, Okay. You gave us a little bit of background on how you came to be
0: living, working and playing where you currently are. But let's take a little bit of a switch because you mentioned Europe, as well as North America. So tell us a little bit more about how you came to be where you were your first time leaving North America or Canada after emigrating from Cameroon.
1: Okay, so when I immigrated, like when I came to, to Canada, I, again, like I, I grew up here, I stayed with my dad. But at the time, I'm still currently, my mom lives in Europe. So my mom lives in the Netherlands. So I would go. Oh,
0: okay.
1: got it. That was the connection. So usually, um, yeah, so if I'm in, in the Netherlands, it's because I'm visiting my mom, and I did my master's also in the Netherlands. So I would go there very often. I have, you know, some of my best friends are still living there. But the period of time that I would say I spend, usually when I go is for a very short period of times. But between uh, 2013, 2014, I lived there for about 12 months. Mm -hmm. I was doing my master's there. So I think that was one of, I guess, actually one of the pivotal moments for me because that was the first time also that I had experience to go to South Africa and you know, did like a, a research with farmers, rural farmers, in like a very small village in the north of Limpopo. And that's what sort of really started my, I mean, I already had a passion before, but I think it really cemented my passion for really like the informal economy in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so I started, I guess, more in my adult years going to Europe around like 2014. Tell us a little bit more. What did you study when you were in Amsterdam? yeah so i did my master's in international development studies and um, it was sort of i I focused on environment development and conflict as my track so it was Mm. a very interesting intersection it was a one-year program that was very intensive so i yeah it was it was very interesting just having a combination of economic courses that are you know not your like typical traditional economic like development economic courses but really encouraging you to think about alternative Ways of organizing economically. So I really like that, was one of the courses that I really liked. And I think that really made me appreciate the program a bit more. And then the practical component of it as well. You know, like I spent three months in Chakuma, this village in, in Limpopo. Yeah, and just being with these farmers, I think I, I spoke to over 150 farmers for the three months that I was there. And just really, you know, talking to them and just understanding how they're being innovative in their day to day, despite limitations that they're experiencing. And, you know, whether it's in accessing inputs or whether it's in the actual business of running their farm and, you know, selling their produce and thereafter. And of course, I think even it, then, it just really stood out to me that the question wasn't a It wasn't a question of they're not producing enough or they're not whatever the challenge might be. The, the, actually, the question became. Why is it so difficult for those who are operating within the informal economy to be connected to the formal economy? Right. Mm -hmm. So um, they were producing in surplus. Like I was holding cabbages that I had to hold with my two, like my two hands just because they were so heavy. Mm -hmm. And but they couldn't sell them in the market because now everybody's going to supermarket or whatever. And even if they did go to like the local market, they were producing so much. That they couldn't sell all of it, so they were actually having to throw out some of the produce that they were making because it would go bad, and things like that. So I think that's when I really started thinking about how do we link the informal to the formal in a more systematic way. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, and it, you know, it, it kind of goes across sectors for me. So whether it's agricultural, artisan economy, or just kind of within the, the informal sector in general.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting, because you mentioned environment, and we're now what I think in week the end of week one of the COP26 climate yes. conference. And so, you know, I was listening to a program and, you know, the environmental mascot, so to speak, Greta, she uh-huh. had said something like, oh, the COP26 is just big nations, blah, 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 right? Yeah. And, and so I'm interested in your perspective because we have the world powers reprimanding or, you know, ticks ticks to, Russia and China for not showing up, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so what are what are your thoughts on that? Like what you know, what is the place of something like that and how relevant is it really for Africa?
1: To be honest, I am at a space where I am thinking that this sort of platforms are really not relevant. They're not yep. going to create massive impact for us. I think that all the funding that goes into organizing it could be put into actual action. Mm -hmm. And I think that some of the people that invite as guest speakers should not be given those platforms, Mm -hmm. right? Um, I know, like, I think there's one environmental activist that I follow on Instagram. She's sort of like more a slow fashion space just in that, in that space a little bit but I was following her work and you know she was talking about how they have like I didn't actually follow the the summit actually just because I'm so like right now my brain is just like not there I don't see the yeah. the, the, the relevance of them anymore so I don't really follow like actively follow but she was talking about how I guess they invited like a senior uh, executive from Shell to talk about environmental issues and I was just like that's not aligned. right like right. we know Shell is one of the worst polluters, you know, especially when we think about the African continent, we think about countries like Nigeria, we think about, Mm -hmm. you know, the impact that they've had in local natural ecosystem, and then to give them that platform to talk about what they are doing to reduce environmental footprint, I feel like it's just sort of a slap in the face for a lot of those communities that are still going through these issues, Mm -hmm. where Shell is really, and many other companies, like they're not really responding to those issues, but Mm -hmm. here they are. Right, in this global platform talking about environmental sustainability when they're not putting that into action. Right. So I guess just going back to that question, like I just I don't see the relevance of it. Like it's not and not just this, but even a lot of the summits that we hold nowadays, right? Whether it's around economic World Economic Forum and all the other, I think it's just really I guess like the phrase, yeah, I was going to say just to show face, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but um, I I don't think, I think if you're really action oriented and really wanting to solve these issues, then you should be thinking about how to direct all of that finance to actually solving the issue versus having another summit to discuss how you can solve it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I
0: absolutely kind of agree. Like I'm not in <laughs> environment or what have you, but every time I'm hearing about these things, I just realize we have a broken policy infrastructure. We have a broken implementation infrastructure. And by doing these things, we are just feeding what I call the TV show, which mm-hmm. is the media that has a narrative that has been by the, the shells and the global yeah. corporates to say, oh, you know, our business is inherently bad for the environment, but I think there was some talk about being off of fossil fuels in the next 30 years or something like that. But that's Mm -hmm. against their existential (laughs) purpose. Yeah. Yeah. So how can you ask those people? It's always asking, you know, the
1: criminal to police themselves.
0: Mm -hmm. It just doesn't happen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you on that. I just, I think, and I think it's maybe part, it's part of a larger conversation too. And I think it's part of why I have slowly moved away from more like the traditional development space Mm -hmm. and sort of now more into the private sector and seeing how I can leverage private sector for social impact. Right. And looking at different business models and things like that, because I think that The way that we've been engaging in development, like you mentioned, is drastically broken, whether it's in terms of first, how we're even having these conversations. A lot of the people that are impacted by development issues are never really on these platforms. Mm
0: -hmm. When
1: they are on the platform, you often see that they are there to just talk about their own experiences as sort of like the marginalized person, so they don't even have that I don't want to say agency in that sense because they do have agency in a way, but they're not giving that full dignity in a sense, right? So let's say if you're organizing an event to raise funds for gender equality and you have someone who has been a victim of FGM, fine, the they're wanting to talk and raise funds for that, right? But often within the international development space, that's the only time that that person is giving a platform. mm mm-hmm. Whereas they could be giving a platform multiple all the time. So why use that story? Why leverage the story only when you actually need something as an organization or when you want to be able to show that you're doing something the right way when on the day-to-day, that's not the norm for you. Mm -hmm. So I think just seeing a lot of that and realizing that in as much as a lot of these conversations are happening, things are really not going to change because there's no incentive for the system itself to change. So, so I might as well find other ways of trying to create impact where people actually might have a means of, of doing things better for themselves. And one of that ways economic means, right? So for them to be able to, to have access to revenue and, and then make those decisions for themselves. Yeah. So
0: that's a good segue into just kind of for us to understand what motivated you to get into the international development space in general.
1: Yeah, good question. So I have thought about this quite a number of times, and I think I always go back to growing up in Cameroon. I had a good life. You know, I was privileged. I went to school. I had you know family around me. I you know never went without food. So I had a good life. But there are people around that you know we're going through hard times, right? So you can see someone who you have your peers when it comes to school, and then their shoes like broken or something like that, right? So I think from an early age, I always question why that was the case why did some people have and others don't and then when I started thinking about how to make change I remember earlier in my adult my early adult years I was more into I'm like okay I'm going to make change in politics I'm going to get into politics that's how I'm going to make change so like from 18 like I think 18 to 21 years old like I was well actually 16 to 21 years old I was like this super activist person I'm like I'm going to get into politics diplomacy create change at that level. And then I just, I don't even remember the exact scenario. And I was just like, yeah, politics is politics. If I go in there, I'm going to be swallowed in. And it's not going to be the space for me to make change because it's just politics is politics. It's not there really to create change for the global mass. And then I remember just sort of like looking towards my end of uh, CEPJAP. So in Quebec, in Quebec, we have a different system where after high school, you go to like CJAP So CJAP is like a college for two years. And then you go to university. So after like my last year of CEGEP, I was just like looking at like international relations program. And I'm like, "Mm, I don't think I want to do this. It sounds really fun, but I don't see what I could tangibly do with this. And then I was looking at economics. And I'm like, "Mm, I don't really like math that much. So I don't (laughs) want to do that either. And then somehow I came across this international development program at the University of Ottawa, which was really great. And then they had a bilingual offering, right? So I, because I'm, I'm bilingual, so I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. So that's how I kind of, I read, you know, the intro to in the program. There's a lot around economic empowerment. There was a lot of around food systems. There was a lot of, you know, conflict and private sector and development and all of those different things. And I think that's when I started thinking, oh my God, okay, I can actually do this. I can do this. I can make impact. I can travel, and you know, and and work in different parts of the world, but do something that is creating pe- impact for others, outside of myself and outside of my family. Mm-hmm. So that's how I kind of got into international development. I did. Uh, I finished a program in two years. I don't know why I was in such a hurry, but it was, a, it was three years. I finished a program in two years, and then went to that. After that, I went to Amsterdam and I did the my masters there as well. But yeah, I think since then I, I haven't really looked back.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting, and that seems like a common theme is from a very young age. People that get into this, they've just seen it, and they are dissatisfied with the inequality and, and want to find solutions so that's yeah. yeah
1: yeah because like it's i think so a child's mind right like if i go back and, and think of myself as a child it doesn't make sense right like yeah if you go to work your parents go to work they should have enough like they should be paid enough to take care of you so why are they not paid enough to take care of you mm-hmm. or why are they're not selling enough to take care of you so as a child you don't really fully understand that Especially if you see maybe your peers, like your parents are doing it and they have a car and they have houses and then you're like, but like, why are you not doing it? So you don't understand a lot of those systemic issues or market failures and all of those things. So it just kind of, it stuck to me really from an early age and yeah.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about where in Cameroon, because we know that Cameroon has the English side and the French yeah. side. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Cameroon here. here. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm from the English part of Cameroon. Okay. Yeah, okay. I'm from the English part. Yeah. So, but my family is bilingual. So, like, I was born in the Anglophone part. My okay. dad was born in the Anglophone part, but I do have a large part of my family that's Francophone as well. Okay. um So, they're based in the Francophone part and then others in, in the Anglophone part. So, I think primarily also because my ethnic group majority, my ethnic group is primarily French speaking, but okay. because my dad's parents, my grandparents lived or they had somehow moved to the English part of the country. That's where they were living and working. So we kind of now have that bilingual mix.
0: Okay. So when Mm -hmm. you say bilingual, it's French, English. French and English. Yeah.
1: Okay. But what is your... Yeah. uh Yeah. We we have like on my dad's side, we're K, so um, it's like from the grass fields part so one well, of my only group is BAMLIKI, K. Right? It's one of the, the dominant groups. And ironically, also, it's often referred to as a like oh, group that's okay. really savvy with business. <laughs> like, <laughs> right? like, they're very entrepreneurial. And to this day, I have not met a single K person that is just doing one thing, right? Like, either either yeah. a professor, they have a business, or they're doing whatever else. So they're very, very entrepreneurial, very sort of, like, getters in that way that's when like, when we talk about positive stereotypes i guess that's one of the stereotypes uh-huh. that's usually associated with family case and then my mom's ethnic group is a little bit different so i'm yeah, she's she's Dwala. so yeah so it's a bit two different ethnic groups so is hers from a you know northern region southern region yeah south okay yeah she's from yeah, the the southern part so yeah so she's anglophone so she's from the southern part okay too. got
0: it got it Okay, so this is good segue into my global speak question. So this is where I ask you to share a word, a phrase, or a saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value it as global speak.
1: <laughs> okay, I think this is a good one. So I actually have two that have become part of my everyday language, or everyday speak so to say. I've traveled quite a bit to Swaziland and Tanzania, and in both places, I think I picked up some cues that I still use still today. Uh-huh. <laughs> While I was in Swaziland, the thing that people always say, oh, like "yebo," and "yebo" just means yes, right? Okay. So, uh-huh. but even so now, when I am like talking to someone that I am very familiar with, and this is you know, like they're saying something, it's like, "How are you doing?" and I'm just like "yebo." <laughs> and they're like what does that mean you know but like, it's just become like I say it now without even thinking about it uh-huh. but I just I use it in a way now where it's like it's I'm good all is it's well different. kind of thing all is well uh-huh. and then the other one is I picked up in Tanzania is pole poly. pole 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 okay yeah and this one I say more to myself than to people poly I said to myself because I, you know how like in the West, like we're very like, okay, everything needs to be fast. Like, you, you know, like you we were all about productivity and like speed. When I started traveling to Tanzania, I just was like, okay, everything is very like,
0: yeah. Know, it's very,
1: like <laughs> <fruit> and <laughs> yeah. And I remember some of the partners that I we're working with at the time, some of my colleagues there would just be like, Pole, pole, Tina, it will get done. It will get uh-huh. done. Don't stress. Uh-huh. It will get done. Uh-huh. So I say that to myself now. Like if I'm working on something and the deadline is like super tight and I'm getting stressed, I'm like Polipolitina. Yeah. <laughs> so that's yeah. So those are two things that I picked up that are sort of like my part of my day to day.
0: Okay, nice. I like them. Uh-huh. So Yebo and poly. Yeah. <laughs> so from the south and from the east. Of
1: exactly.
0: Okay, nice. So let me now give a little background. So I came across you because we're both on um, a WhatsApp group called Black Women in Development. And you launched recently your new business. So tell us, yeah, (laughs) congratulations on that. We're excited to hear. So tell us more about it. Tell us more about what you're doing now and and how you... Thank you.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think it's been a long journey. So I think maybe I'll give a bit of context Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm, as to how I I just decided to launch the platform. But a lot of my work in development um, as you know, is has been really focused on economic empowerment. So there's been a lot of programming around SME development, you know, entrepreneurship training for youth, for women, vulnerable women across different sectors. Again, artisan, economy, agriculture, different spaces. So I've really worked in that space of even creating like an organizational strategy for empower for economic empowerment programming. So throughout that process, I was just always curious about the role like how can we leverage SMEs for empowerment, right? like for economic empowerment, for vulnerable groups? How can we ensure that the social impact aspect of wanting to ensure that vulnerable vulnerable groups have access to income, that integral part of a business model like you're not just in there to generate profit but you're also thinking about the people that are making the products for you um, or the people that are working for you so thinking about different models business models whether it's employer ownership uh, model or whether it's just sort of a social like a general social enterprise uh, type thing i've been doing that for some time and then recently As I mentioned, I transitioned out out of sort of more traditional development space and actually got into tech. So I have been working in tech for the past, for some time, past couple of months, I guess, where I have one of the top incubators in the world where I'm really uh, creating programs, again, for founders to start and grow their businesses, leveraging a lot of my experiences, but also my own entrepreneurship journey to support them and create resources for them. And one of the programs that I'm actually running within that, so I'm leading the Black Innovation Program at our organization. Mm -hmm. So we're primarily working with Black founders. And one of the initiatives within that is a social impact stream. So working with founders, getting them to see how they can really bring out the social impact aspect of their work, whether it's waste management, whether it's reducing food waste locally, whether it's working with refugee women. So just working with a lot of these groups, the small entrepreneurs, and just, again, giving them that mentorship on a one-on-one basis, getting them to kind of think about some of the things that they're not necessarily thinking about, right? So they're thinking very business, but they're not thinking about, okay, yeah, it's not enough to say this is my mission, but how are you operationalizing that mission, right? Like, how are you making sure that in terms of, let's say if you want to empower youth, how are you doing that? on a day to day in terms of your business operations. So I noticed that a lot of the founders are not really thinking about that and they're not thinking about measuring their social impact, they're not thinking about reporting their social impact. They're just thinking this is what I want to do and then I'm just going to run a business. Yeah, and that's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I noticed that gap and I thought okay like there is a lot <laughs> there's a lot to do whether locally or even working with founders different parts of the world and addressing different issues. So I'm like, okay, I have a lot of this resource, I have this knowledge, I've done this, you know, and I have this, I guess, unique position of having been in both spaces, right, in the business space and in the nonprofit space. And I can really, really match both, both of them together for social impact.
0: And I thought, let me
1: launch like a mentorship program where I can work one-on-one with founders, but do it so in a way where it's accessible, right? So I just launched with the initial one-on-one, one-hour session. So founders can just book a one-on-one like hour session if there's something more strategic that you want to talk about. And then based on that, we can decide if we want to be able to do maybe a quarterly mentorship program or an annual mentorship program, depending on your need. But yeah, I think I launched the program just really observing that there's a lot of gaps out there in terms of how People think about business and social impact and how they combine both and making sure that it's it's fully integrated. It's not just two isolated things.
0: Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the the organization you're working with. So the Black Innovation um, Program
1: program and where is so, that where is that out of? So that's at uh, the DMZ at Rice and University. Okay. Uh, so the DMZ so is one of the I guess we say one of the top incubators. In Canada, but also globally, we've always come out as one of the top 10. Mm-hmm. Um, we've pushed out companies that are global. They've gone out to raise uh, VC funds and scaled to the US and scaled internationally. And Every time when I look at a black company coming through, right, whether they're coming into our, let's say if they're coming into your book because we have different programming, right? So we have BookCam, we have fast track, and then we have incubator. But BookCam is more sort of like your early stage and you're sort of refining, like trying to figure out the development of your MVP. And then fast track, you already have an MVP that's in developed. It's not, it doesn't necessarily need to be a market, but it needs to be fully functional and has that potential to go to market. And that incubator—that's when we're really having a strategy for you to go to market and and position you for VC funds as funding opportunity as well. So I think within the Black Innovation Program, we noticed again there's a gap, right? So a lot of the companies that come through, and not only where I work, but in a lot of this tech incubation spaces, a lot of the companies that come through don't look like us and. You know, the companies that do look like us have a harder time getting into the room. I see it, right? Like we look at applications every day. Mm-hmm. I know what my peers are thinking, what the feedbacks are that they're giving around this company. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes I'll be like, okay, I, I understand where you're coming from, but there is a huge market here. For example, let's say if there is a company that's in financial technology or in the remittance space. And fine, it's saturated, but they have a special offering. And we can say, okay, this special offering is not in the market. Can we incubate them so that we can get this to market? So there's always a lot more resistance around these types of companies. Mm -hmm. And the goal with the Black Innovation Program is really to build the capacity of founders, of Black founders, and be able to create that pipeline for them so that they can get into our incubation program. Mm-hmm. so they can get access to funding they can get access to mentorship of course it's not easy there are always challenges there but i think that's that's the start so you in that role are the pre
0: prep so you're getting people ready to then stream funnel into the
1: other programs that then give more access to more markets more funding more resources in a sense because like so essentially also the black innovation is a stream we have to think about it as a stream across all the dmz programming right so okay. we have as i mentioned we have bootcamp we have fast track and we have incubator so i will work i work with companies along those three streams
0: sure
1: so we would create let's say for fast track let's say right now i'm building the fast track program so we're having the first cohort towards the end of november The goal of that is we want to be able to position black companies so that they can get into incubator. Got it. And what that means is, again, we're looking at a combination of workshops. We're looking at mentorship. We're looking at what do they need to have in place? Do they have agreements, sort of like shareholder agreements in place? Do they have, you know, in terms of when they're ready to go out and start seeking funding? Do they know how much equity they want to be able to give away? Are uh, there resistance towards giving equity away? If the resistance towards giving equity away, then they're not a fit for incubator because, again, you know, mm-hmm. if That's you're the point. wanting to yeah. respond, you have to give parts of your company away. Mm-hmm. So just sort of having a lot of these conversations, looking mm-hmm. at the legal part. Do you have all your documents in place? Are you thinking about all the tax benefits that you can have as an incorporated company? right? If you're doing primarily also, if you're doing research and development, are you thinking about some of those tax benefits that you can have back from the government? Are you thinking about recruitment, building your team? How can we support you in that? And then the other key piece is the product itself, right? What's the product that you're developing? What do you need? What kind of support do you need? develop that to finalize that product. Mm -hmm. And is it a product that is scalable? That's one of the main things as well. Is it is, is it a product that, you know, if you put in front of a VC and the VC can say, okay, I can see myself investing in this and generating profit out of it. So there are a lot of questions that we consider. And oftentimes it's hard to have to say no to companies just because we don't necessarily see the fit in that pipeline. But what we can do and say is within the network, let's say if they're, because in other DMs here as well, there are different zones, right? So let's say if you're in the creative space, let's say if you're in fashion, there's a fashion zone. If you're into supply uh, AI or supply chain, there's a supply AI program. So there are different programming. So we're always looking for where does this founder fit? He might not fit for this program, but maybe he fits into another programming. So kind of always think about it in that way as well.
0: Mm-hmm. So particularly looking at startups or founders that are looking to serve African markets right? Mm-hmm. are you finding that there's more resist I mean I'm assuming there is but what is the resistance that they face and how are you coaching them to be able to access and get mm-hmm. into those markets and continue with their vision for whatever it is that they have for Africa or you know another less developed economy?
1: Yeah, so we do have a lot, like at the DMZ, we have companies that are applying from different parts of the world, right? They're applying from Nigeria, they're applying from Ghana, Ukraine, and all of those those different countries. But one of the key things is if you're applying to the DMZ, then you're trying to get into the North American market. Okay. You're not necessarily only looking to work within the Nigerian market or the Kenyan market, or um, you're trying to get into a more global market.
0: So you kind of have proof of concept in your own market before you're moving. Exactly,
1: exactly. And sometimes that could be a good thing, but it could also be a really negative thing because what's innovative in the African market is not innovative in the Western market, right? right? For example, let's say if we have a company that that is um, creating a, a platform, For those who are interested in tech to learn about coding yeah like you're learning how to code using python or just like teaching others right so like a sharing a knowledge sharing platform right that might be unique because you're sort of in a sense democratizing knowledge on the continent you don't have access to have an entire degree but you can take a course and build your competence in that way that's huge in the african market for people to be able to do that and there's A large market for it if you look at the youth demographic right Mm -hmm. but in the west not so much yeah so it's harder to get companies like that it's harder to kind of get them programming because again if we think about the VC side of things are investors going to fund them most likely not yeah so companies like that companies in fintech as I mentioned companies in the remittance space as I mentioned as well so you know I think that there's been a lot of success it's kind of I guess a two-pronged thing in the sense that it's been a success where we've since some companies succeed in the, you know, in like the knowledge sharing space for specifically for tech education. But at the same time, it's harder for other companies to kind of get into that space as well. And I think particularly in the Canadian market, it's even more challenging because Canadian investors are very traditional, Mm -hmm. right? So they will be more traditional than American investors were quick to give. Canadian investors are very, very traditional. They're really, really beyond proof of concept. They already want to see you, you know, they want um, the generating yeah, generating revenue. <laughs> 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 well, I need an investment to be able to generate this amount of revenue that right. you want me to generate, right? So right. it's always that challenge, but particularly in the Canadian space, yeah. Yeah,
0: interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's, that's interesting. In terms of where you find yourself finding the the most rewards. I noticed that you, you know, you have coaching services. And so tell us about that process of becoming a coach. And Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the things that you see that you immediately know, like this is going to be a successful entrepreneur, and this is going to be something that
1: needs coaching out? Mm -hmm. The first thing I always look for is someone who is coachable. You have to Mm -hmm. be coachable, right? Like you can't, you can't go out and say, oh, I need support in building my business and doing this if you're not receptive to, to hearing what the other person has to say, or if you're very defensive of what you've already accomplished so far. Yeah. Right? So there might be companies fine, you've developed a prototype, it's great, you've generated revenue using that prototype, but you're stuck and your coach is telling you, okay, but like you need to do this and you're like, yeah no, 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 but this has worked for me so far, but it's not working anymore. <laughs> right So yeah. I think one of the things is that if you're not coachable, that's already a dead end. Yeah. Um, so we can we can't work together. The second thing is someone who is also an implementer. Right. So I'm going to coach you, but I'm not doing the work for you. Right. At the end of the day, if you want to be able to have 10 new whether hosted clients, I can give you tips and things like that on how to approach them, but you have to do that work. I'm not going to be approaching them for you. Mm -hmm. If you want to think about your social impact messaging, how to communicate that to your customers. And do you even know who your customers are? Sometimes a lot of founders that I talk to, they're like, Everybody. (laughs) No, your customer is not everybody. That's the first mistake. Exactly. Right. So it's just thinking around around those things. Right. So are you going to implement what we are talking? Because let's say if you book a program and I'm meeting with you every week, once a week for an hour. And every week it's the same story. Oh, I didn't have the time to do this. I, you know, I understand things can happen. Like some weeks might, you might be too tired or you might have things that sort of come out of nowhere. But if it's consistently, oh, I I, couldn't do it, I couldn't do it, I couldn't do, it I couldn't do that, or I, then it's like, what's yeah. the point, right? So you have to be actively wanting to implement what we are discussing, some of the strategies that we're coming up with. And then that's how we're going to learn. Like, is the strategy working? Is it not working? Okay, then how do we reinvent the wheel, like what do we do next to try and and see that we can move things forward. So I think those are the key things that I look for, both in my job when I'm mentoring founders, but also when I'm doing like my one-on-one coaching Mm -hmm. as well. Like recently I spoke to a girl and like, she was just like, oh my gosh, I never thought of this. I never thought of this. Okay. Okay. (laughs) But it just, sometimes it really helps like having light bulbs go off.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I often do this, so forgive me, because I asked two questions at one time. So you as a
1: coach, how mm-hmm. did you find yourself in that space? It's interesting. I've had a lot of people reach out to me mm-hmm. for mentorship, mm-hmm. even before I launched the platform. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's not something that I had even thought about. Like I would just, someone was like, would, through LinkedIn, for example, I get a lot of emails on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Say, oh, I'm thinking about this. Can I talk to you to like, just get your feedback or your advice? So I would start like, a, you know, next thing I know, like it's a two hour conversation and we're talking and, you know, <laughs> so I do a lot of that. Um, and then also even just in life, right? So like let's say, for example, one time I'd gone to a networking event in Montreal and uh, just talking about entrepreneurship and for two young graduates and, and young um, students who are trying to get into the workforce. And a bunch of them came up to me and they're like, oh, yeah, I have this business idea. Like, what do I? And then I started talking to them outside of that space, right? So, even just outside of before kind of launching the platform, I've just had a lot of people reach out to me seeking advice around this. Sometimes it's people who are also within the international development space. That are wanting to launch like their own product company, whether working with artisans in basket weaving or textile, and some of those different products. And then they'll, you know, because they know like I've worked in that space, so they would come to me and seek advice on on what to do and just sort of run their ideas through me and think about what's like what would be a good strategy for launch. And then also others who just reach out to me um, on LinkedIn and just sort of ask, you know, like I've been thinking about this business for a while, what do I do? (laughs) you know so that's how that's part of that journey as to why i thought like okay let me just think about this coaching thing for a bit and then the second part which is what i mentioned earlier was also even within the social impact stream talking and mentoring founders and seeing that gap that there's actually Mm -hmm. a gap in terms of bringing that social impact into the business it's not just saying oh this is a social impact and then you run the business but you have to be accountable to that goal right right you have to have systems in place to be able to track whether you're achieving it and then reporting on it and, and, and whatnot so just thinking around all of those those things and the gaps and all the inquiries for mentorships that i get and yeah so that was essentially the it brought everything together yeah yeah yeah
0: yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. okay okay nice so i want to pivot to my mindset hack question because I think this is a good point in Mm -hmm. um, transitioning. So what is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack? So that's one that you can imagine, one that you practice, one that you know of
1: one that i practice i would i would go with one that i practice so mm-hmm. um i don't know if this is going to, to sound weird but i think sometimes i think as humans we often even if we're doing amazing things and we're working and we're you know exactly like successful in our careers or we just seem very positive like upwards we often doubt ourselves right or we often think oh i'm not doing enough oh I, this could be better like we just have a certain level of expectations of what we should be doing and i often notice that in myself so what i do is I try to, um, and I think this is also really influenced by a book that I'm reading right now, but I try to um, get outside of my thoughts, right? So it's like I'm observing my thoughts as a third person in a way, right? And then that way I'm observing the pattern. I'm like, okay, listening to what I'm saying to myself. And I'm like, yeah, but like, you know, if I'm hearing myself, if I hear my mind going, oh yeah, but you could have done that better, and then my mind, and then I'm like, the third person is observing my mind. That third person is like, oh, yeah, but you, you did it anyway. It's like, why are you doubting? You did it, mm-hmm. you know, and this is a result, right? So maybe it's not perfect, but you did it and you can grow and improve as you're. So I think it's really being, it's essentially, it's just being mindful of your thoughts
0: mm-hmm.
1: and being mm-hmm. able to observe your thoughts in whichever way you want. Mm-hmm. Without judgment.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Exactly. So, but I think for me, just kind of taking that step where I'm sort of able to, sort of pause and observe like what I'm thinking and what I'm saying to myself. That's something that has really been helping me. Nice.
0: That's a good one. Mm -hmm. Right. Because I I think you're right. I think as humans, our first instinct is to, I guess, I don't even know why we do it, but it's to be questioned and and doubt and, you know, and not celebrate our victories as much as, you know, it's like, well, it's okay. And so I think, yeah, yeah. I think that goes with your um, pole pole, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> It'll happen. Yeah, It'll exactly. Happen. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So you mentioned that you're reading a certain book. And so, you know, we've talked about you as the coach, the serious person. So I read uh-huh. somewhere that you love sushi and that, you're, uh, yes. <laughs> and that your favorite color is sky blue. Tell us something more about the Tina that's not the, um, the coach or the the social impact champion.
1: I think, yeah. I think that's a good question. And I think, because even yes. So yesterday was a friend's birthday, and her partner was just like, um, "I get very annoyed when I go on your on your LinkedIn, and it's sustainability, sustainability. Can you talk about something else?" <laughs> <laughs> but that's what LinkedIn is for. <laughs> So I was just, I was it got me thinking, right? It's like, okay, but what are the the, the other sides to me? I'm a creative. I love being creative. I, th- mm-hmm. I think I thrive on creativity. And with Atelier and a lot of the products that I've been working on, I designed those products myself, right? Oh, nice. So I think yeah. being able to express my creativity is really, whether in product or even just like in creating my own space, like how I live and even, yeah, just how you present yourself in general as well and just being creative for Ahmad, I think that's really important to me. I love to travel, I love traveling, I love experiencing different cultures. So the last two years has been difficult Yeah. not being able to travel, right? Because yeah. before that I was traveling at least three times, three, four times a year. Yeah. So it's been challenging not being able to travel, but hopefully we'll get back to that.
0: Yeah.
1: Very soon.
0: Canada's kind of one of the like most hawkish countries where this is concerned. Like, are you all
1: in a lockdown, out of a lockdown? What where where no, we're we're well, right now, uh we're out of lockdown. Like in Ontario, I can't speak for the other provinces, but okay. Ontario and Quebec, we're out of lockdown. Okay. But in a lot of places, like you do have to show proof of vaccination. Let's say mm-hmm. if you wanted to go out dining. Yeah. You have to show proof of vaccination, which some people are sort of against, but you know it's to each his own. But I think we were in, you know, in and out of lockdown for quite some time, and yeah. I think that was taking a toll on a lot of people. Right. But now, you know, people are traveling a little bit. Things sort of seem to be getting back to some kind of a normal. I'll be traveling in December so I think it's exciting again for me in that in that way but I think yeah things are getting back to normal some universities as of next year will fully be or I think they're saying 85 or 95 percent capacity in person
0: okay
1: yeah so majority um yeah so things are getting back to normal slowly so okay so would you consider yourself a reader a watcher or a listener I am both a listener and a reader so. yeah a watcher, not so much <laughs> so what are some of your uh, favorite reads lately so right now so i read a wide array of different types of books right yeah. so right now i'm reading a book it's called true love but it's a meditative book so it's it's a book i don't know if i can pronounce his name correctly but it's this this writer he's a buddhist monk mm. but it's a uh, not not okay So the book really talks about sort of it's a practice for like awakening your heart. Like how do you awaken your heart so that you can be your best self for yourself, but for the people around you, right? For your parents, for your partner, for your friends. And it really comes down to learning how to be present. So that's essentially what he's talking about. So how do you make sure that you're fully present on a day-to-day basis Mm -hmm. with those that that you interact uh interact with so it's been a really great read i'm reading it also as part of a book club so i had to join a book club because i noticed that i was falling behind on my reading i used to be a huge reader like when i was young in my teenage years i was just you would never see me without a book yeah but I think like as you get through university where you're reading all of this like technical heavy textbooks yeah. and, and whatnot, you kind of fall like follow the like the reading track. Like yeah. just reading for yourself exactly. and reading for fun and for pleasure.
0: Yeah.
1: So I'm trying to get back into it. And the book club is really helping in that sense.
0: Yeah, yeah nice. And what about good listens?
1: Listens. um, I listen to a lot of music mm-hmm. as a default okay. um, <laughs> I listen to a lot of music just to kind of again get my mind into that space of whether in you know it's uh, relaxation or whether it's just bringing more joy whether it's just wanting to get into a dancing mode sometimes I listen and I'm dancing in my apartment like i you know? <laughs> <laughs> so just creating creating your own energy in different ways yeah but yeah I love listening to music and uh, some podcasts but I haven't To be honest actively listening to podcasts in hawaii it's more predominantly been music
0: yeah
1: and uh recently i've been listening to a lot of um i have different playlists on my on my spotify channel i have some playlists for sort of like when i'm working so when i'm working those are more instrumental so a lot of like instrumental hip-hop like slow funkadelic instrumental type genre and then if i am Wanting to dance around, I'm um, doing laundry and or cooking or doing whatever around the house, and I just really want to just create that space of just being lively. There is definitely some Afrobeat that will be playing around, <laughs> some Afrobeat, and uh, yeah, just Afrobeat. I love Kisamba as well, so oh yeah, it's a combination yeah, of either Kisamba Afrobeat, yeah, um, I can
0: imagine, yeah, nice, nice, nice. Okay, cool. So we'll have a link to that. Book in show notes and a little bit of if we can get Tina to give us a link to one of her playlists, we'll do that, or we'll <laughs> give you some links to some Africa absolutely. Feet. Thank you so much. Yeah, Absolutely um, songs. So this has been very. It's thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. I'm so happy to have met you and to really kind of get a new lens on social entrepreneurship and how it's a sector that needs attention and someone is paying attention and making sure that we have well-trained, well-coached entrepreneurs that are emerging on the scene. Yeah. No, thank you for having
1: me. I've, mm-hmm. It's been a great conversation as well. Thank you. So do you have any last words for our listeners before we go? I guess no, not not in that sense. But what I always generally say is just think of how, think of different ways that you can create impact in your own surroundings. Mm-hmm. Um, very small ways, right? Like if you love fashion, you love environment. If you're very environmentally conscious, you want to reduce your footprint, think about how you can consume more locally, think about all of those different things. But yeah, just kind of think a bit about, yeah, about how you can create impact in your own local space, how that aligns with your values, and just being a bit more intentional in how you consume, the businesses you support, and all of that. Yeah, yeah that's great <laughs> advice. Yeah, be more intentional about you mm-hmm. and
0: your place in this space. Wonderful. Exactly. Wonderful. So where can we find you, Tina? We'll put that in the show notes, but where can we find you? Where where are you on your socials and your website? Give us a little bit more.
1: Yeah, so um I have my website, Tina and mm-hmm. and I am on Instagram as well. Um, mm-hmm. on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can find me on LinkedIn as well. Okay, okay, wonderful.
0: But and and also what about um your a few good things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So
1: a few good things. And um, I have it on um, on Instagram, but the website is also a fewgoodthings.ca. Okay. So there's that. Yeah. And actually, for that, I'm also part of an incubator, which has been really interesting, just kind of getting that <laughs> business to the next level as well. Okay. Um, but yeah. So it's also on Instagram, a few good if you good things, a unders- few good underscore things. Okay. On Instagram, okay. Um, but if you go on the website, then there's the Instagram link, there. Uh, okay. There, it's
0: great, Instagram. great, great. So we'll see all facets of Tina in the show. Notes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right, all right, listeners. This has been another episode of the podcast. Thank you for joining us. And as always, we have new episodes each Tuesday. And you can see them or catch them at www.localcitizenspod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. So subscribe, like, share, tell a friend. We love to hear from you, recommend a guest. It's all good. And so until next time, bye for now.